Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Hey, it's great to be with you guys today. Wonderful to be with you. Thanks for that round of applause and boost my confidence up here. Um, hey, um, so, so like Michael said, if you've been here the last couple of weeks or maybe you've been watching online, we've been in this series uh, that we've been doing throughout the season of Lent, our 40 days of prayer and fasting leading up to Easter, preparing our hearts, getting ready for Easter. And we were calling this series The King's Cross. We've been taking a look basically at the last few days of Mark's account in the Gospel of Mark, leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. And the very first week, Heather kicked it off and talked about how Jesus is a different kind of king. He's a king that wasn't expected. He's a king that wasn't going to a throne, but was going to a cross. And last weekend, Michael shared on a critical part of the story where Jesus, the king, rides into the capital city of Jerusalem, fulfilling what the prophets talked about, He comes riding in on the colt of a donkey, and today we're going to basically pick up the story exactly where he left off and see exactly what happens immediately when Jesus arrives in the town. And and looking at the story that we're going to look at today, I think it's one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and even at times abused stories in the Gospels. So we're going to be looking at Mark 11, starting off in verse 11. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, we'll also have the verses on the screen, but it starts off saying this, verse 11 and Mark 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus, he gets to Jerusalem, and the first thing he does, the very first thing he does is he goes to the temple, the big temple in Jerusalem where people came far and wide to worship God. Uh, But he gets there kind of late in the day. Apparently, he's missed the main party, and the after party is apparently a little lame, and he decides that he's going to leave. So there's, he ends up having to leave Jerusalem. He has to go outside of town. Probably that's because during this particular week of the year, during the Passover week, there would have been so many people who had come to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple that it would have been just packed. It would have been packed. There wouldn't have been any vacancies in the downtown Holiday Inn or whatever. So he has to go out of town a couple miles, a little suburb called Bethany, uh, to spend the night. So verse 12, it says, The next day they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, this is an odd, odd little detail in the story, right? The next morning, Jesus gets up. Uh, They're about ready, him and the disciples, to go back into Jerusalem. Uh, But Mark tells us that Jesus was hungry. Apparently, the continental breakfast wasn't very good. Uh, But off in the distance, it says off in the distance, which is an interesting little detail, Jesus sees a fig tree. And he goes over to see if there's any fruit. And even though it wasn't the right season, for big, plump figs to be growing. And his disciples and him go over there, and there's not any fruit on it. And Jesus curses the tree. He curses the tree. And, and I wonder if, if his disciples are thinking, wow, Jesus, you're a little grumpy this morning. You're a little hangry. 
Like, we better Google where's the closest Starbucks on the way into town. Like, you're cursing trees. What's going on? Verse 15, it says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus enters the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Yeah, yeah, I don't think they found a Starbucks on the way in. I think that's pretty clear. No, Jesus gets, he gets into Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple again. Remember the night before he went into the temple and now he's going to the temple again. First thing he does when he gets there. Um, but he starts flipping the tables over. I mean, could you imagine what people were, they had just cheered him as the king coming into town the, you know, the, the day before, riding on a donkey. And to, now he, this is what he's doing. Could you imagine what they were thinking? Imagine what the disciples were thinking and what they were imagining and what was, what's happening. John, one of those particular disciples, tells us in his gospel that Jesus took the time to actually make a whip out of cords to drive out the animals. John 2.15 says this, And so he made a whip out of cords and drove from all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. Um, you know, I think, well, I know, I know there's a much more going on in this story than Jesus needing to eat breakfast. There's something much bigger going on. Jesus is clearly upset. He's angry. But the truth is, is that if he took the time to make a whip, to chase out all the sheep and all the cattle, it implies that Jesus was methodical about this, that Jesus planned this, especially since he uses it as a teachable moment. Verse 11, or 17, we read this, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11 of the Old Testament in these two sentences here. It keeps going in verse 18 and says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, and in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, this is interesting. It's been just 24 hours. The next morning, 24 hours, the following morning, in the same fig tree that Jesus cursed, it's not withered from the leaves. Like it's just a little bit dry and it needs a little bit of rain. It's actually withered from the roots, from the roots up. Now, what do we make of this story, right? This is an odd story. What do we make of this? What is trying to, Jesus trying to teach the disciples? What is he trying to teach us from this story? Well, in this passage, we see that over the course of 36 hours, Mark combines these two different symbols. These two different symbols. He combines these two different events. One involving a temple and one involving a tree. One involving this public spectacle for everyone to witness and see. And one being a private spectacle for just his disciples to witness and see. To us, these symbols, these two parts of the story, they seem completely unrelated. What do the, these two things have to do with each other at all? But actually, in that time and age, 
Both the temple and the fig tree were symbols of the exact same thing. They both represented the same thing. They both represented the the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. The temple was the main place, the main building, the main location of worshiping uh, Israel's God, Yahweh, the Lord. It was the public place. When people thought of the Jewish faith, they thought of the temple. And the fig tree was also a symbol for Israel. In the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah in 8.13 and Hosea 9.10, if you want to fact check me, they both use the fig tree as a metaphor to represent Israel. So, so while it might seem unusual to us, these two things, uh, it would not have been lost on the original audience that these were both symbols for the nation of Israel. So Jesus, he, he tells the people that the temple is meant to be a house of prayer, but it's become a house of robbers. Now, to understand why Jesus is angry, why he's upset, we have to understand a little bit about how the temple was structured and how it was supposed to function. If you want to go ahead and put the, that picture up there. This is a model of what they think the temple probably looked like in Jesus' day and age. And there were different courts or different areas in the temple. There were outer courts and inner courts and then inner courts and more inner courts. And, and, and if you want to throw up the next one, kind of highlighted here, I've kind of highlighted the three main areas. So in green, that's the outermost court. The outermost court was known as the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations. It was supposed to be for all people of all nations to come and to be able to worship God. Jews and non-Jews, men and women, everybody was meant to be included in this outermost court. The next court, as you go in through the next door, once you get through the outer court, that's going to the inner court, that's more, that was a little bit more exclusive. Only Jews were allowed into that area. There was an area for women, there was an area for priests, and then the building, taller structure in the middle, the, that's the, the innermost court, that's called the holy place, and inside there is an area called the holy of holies. And behind a curtain there, that's where the presence of God lived. And only one person, the high priest, once a year was allowed to go into that place. It was the most exclusive of all places in the temple. It's interesting that the presence of God lives there because it's, it's, uh, the word temple in Hebrew is actually the same word that means palace. And temple and palace are the same exact word. A palace being where a king lives, right? Jesus, now the king, has come, and where does he immediately go? He goes to his palace, in a sense, and he's angry at how it's being kept and managed. Now, instead of going straight into the Holy of Holies, where Jesus, I'm sure, could have done that. I mean, he could have gone into the presence of God because he was the presence of God. He, he doesn't go there. He goes to the outer court. He stays in the outer court. And instead of finding people of all nations worshiping and praying, he walks into a zoo, literally a zoo. Josephus, the first century Jewish scholar, tells us that during this particular week, during the Passover week, that it's estimated about 255,000 lambs were brought in, bought and sacrificed in the temple courts. 255,000 lambs, plus doves, plus cattle. There was just animals everywhere, people everywhere. Think of like Wall Street, right? 
Think of people shouting and buying and selling stock and then just throw thousands of animals in there too. You can imagine all the noise, all the chaos, all the, all, all, the, all the stuff going on. And this was supposed to be a place of prayer. Jesus comes into this area and he starts flipping over the sales tables. He's confronting the Jews for making a profit and taking advantage of the foreigners coming from out of town, coming to worship God. See, Jesus didn't come to the temple, to the palace, as king to raise up a Jewish army, to rally the troops together. He actually came to confront them. He came to confront them. See, at first glance, the people look look like they're religiously very busy, right? There's just so much activity. God must be so proud of all the sacrifices that are happening for him. But in fact, he's not. He's angry. There was religion, but no relationship. There was the appearance of spiritual life, but actually no fruit of spiritual life. And this is why Jesus, he intertwines these two stories of the temple and the fruitless fig tree. See, we don't have Middle Eastern fig trees just growing around here, right? Like we have apple trees or other kinds of trees that we're more familiar with. Uh, But you know, earlier in the story, early that morning, when Jesus sees a fig tree off in the distance, and he goes to to check out if it has any fruit, and it doesn't have any fruit, and he curses it. We think, that's so weird. That's so odd. That's so foreign. Well, what, what we don't understand is, I find this really interesting. The nerd in me loves this kind of stuff. There are actually two different fruit crops on fig trees. There are actually two different seasons in which there are crops. The first crop, it comes in early spring. Think like in a few weeks here, when the leaves start to come on, Right? There are these tiny little nodules that are called breba figs that will grow on the old growth of last year's growth of the fig tree. And they're, they're not super sweet, and they don't get really big. And what's interesting is the Jews didn't typically eat these breba figs. They, like, they ate the main figs that, didn't, that came later in the late summer that were like sweeter and bigger and more plump and riper. But what's interesting is the people who tended to eat these little Breba figs were the foreigners, the travelers, and the poor. Think about that. When Jesus goes out to look, and he can't tell from far away. It's from a distance. He has to get closer. He's going, not looking for the main figs. He knows it's not time for those to grow. He's going and looking for these little nodules, these little Breba figs to see if they are growing. And when he gets there and he sees that there are none, he knows that something is wrong with the tree. The tree must have some sort of disease that can't be seen. It must be decayed in some way. You know, leaves without fruit, life without fruit is a sign of eventual decay and death to the tree. And and Jesus' curse, it was miraculous. And it was like fast-forwarded. But it it was a pronouncement of what it was inevitable to come. Jesus' curse and the observation by Peter the next morning that the tree had withered from the roots up was essentially the same object lesson that Jesus was teaching in the temple, and it's this. It's that the people of Israel were not doing their appointed job. That the people of Israel were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. That the tree that was meant to bear fruit for the foreigner, for the poor, for the outsider was not. The temple that was meant to be a place 
for those outside to come into a house of prayer to encounter God was being robbed from them. The system, the system that Israel was following was not fulfilling its purpose. And Jesus, the king, is saying that the old way is about to die. The tree is about to die. I'm about to die. The king is going to go to the cross and overturn the whole sacrificial, sacrificial system and do something so much greater. What Jesus was demonstrating by combining these two symbols, by linking them together, the tree and the temple, was symbolic of the combining of the two people groups on earth, the Jews and everybody else, the non-Jews. There's no more us and them. Jesus is bringing both groups together. No one is going to be excluded from being able to be in the presence of God. No one is no longer going to be put at a disadvantage or, or to be taken advantage of. The temple that was supposed to be a light to the outside world and to make space for those to come and to worship wasn't doing its job. The Israelites were making it harder and more difficult for others to do that. The nation of Israel that was supposed to be the fig tree, producing these Breba figs for the Gentiles, for the outsiders, for the poor to come and to taste and to see that the Lord is good, are not doing that. They're not doing that. What was supposed to be a foreshadowing of the, the bigger, riper, sweeter figs to come in the future, they weren't doing that. And so when Jesus, he comes riding into Jerusalem, riding on his donkey, the first thing he does is he goes to the palace. He goes to the temple. And, and in a sense, he starts rearranging the furniture to make space for others to come in to make space for everyone who wants to, to come in. He's saying that I am making a way for everybody to come into my kingdom. Now, we see in both Jesus' interaction with the temple and the tree that Jesus just isn't inconvenienced. He isn't just annoyed. He's actually angry, which is a side of Jesus we don't always expect, right? We think of we think of Jesus often as meek and mild Jesus, right? Sweet Jesus, kind Jesus, gentle Jesus. We don't think about Jesus as always being angry, but he does get angry at times in the Gospels. And if Jesus got angry, and yet he still was sinless and perfect, which we believe that he is, that's what the Bible teaches, that means that experiencing anger in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not necessarily a sinful thing. That anger is a natural emotion that even God experiences all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. And I think one of the things that Jesus wants us to learn from this story is that there is a right way to handle anger and a wrong way to handle anger. There is a right kind of anger and a wrong kind of anger. The Bible distinguishes this with these two types of anger, calling them unrighteous anger, sometimes called human anger, and righteous anger. Unrighteous anger or human anger hurts others, right? It isolates others. It pushes others away from ourselves and from God. But righteous anger, on the other hand, is correcting anger. It's actually loving. It motivates and empowers us to stand up and to defend the weak rather than tear them down or take advantage of them. 
It leads us to, to justice and to care for others instead of harming them or hurting them. It invites others to come closer to God instead of pushing them further away. James 1.19 and 20 says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger, or unrighteous anger, does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger, unrighteous anger, it actually leads to sin often. and does not produce righteousness. But righteous anger takes sin on. That's what Jesus is doing in this story. He's taking sin on. Notice how both in the temple and with the tree, that Jesus is not out of control. He's not enraged. He doesn't raise his voice. There's no evidence in the story that he's screaming or yelling. I think sometimes we, we kind of think that's implied in the story. We put that in because we make that assumption. But nowhere do we necessarily see evidence of that. In fact, we see he's teaching and explaining what he's doing through the scriptures in this story. Now, human anger is actually something that I struggle with a lot. Uh, a while back, I realized that, hey, this is kind of becoming an issue. This is something that I think I thought I was handling fine and managing okay, but I, I began to realize I felt like the Lord was saying, hey, you need to start to invite some people to pray for you. Start praying for, your, for how to handle your anger, and you probably need to get some help. And so a while back, I actually started seeing a counselor to talk about my anger. And that surprises a lot of people because I seem to be pretty chill most of the time. But, but, but in private, this is something internally that I really do struggle with. And that I've learned, I needed to learn about more about my anger and to learn some, some helpful practical things to make sure that in my anger, I'm responding righteously instead of unrighteously. Too often in my own past, I used this exact story as an excuse in my mind to justify the wrong kind of anger as being right. Too often, I would, you know, lose my temper, raise my voice with my children, or overreact in a given situation. I would think, well, Jesus overturned the tables. How is that any different than what I'm doing? When in fact, it was very different. He was doing something very different than what I was doing. The question I've learned to ask myself what, and distinct, whether, to distinguish whether I'm expressing unrighteous anger or righteous anger is the question of who is in control in this situation? Am I in control of my anger in this situation? Or is my anger in control of me in this situation? The answer to that question always would tell was the telltale sign that if I'm in control, that it's most likely that I'm responding in a righteous way that I have righteous motives, righteous goals. But if my anger is controlling me, if my anger was controlling me, that was never the case. And in the case of this story, and in the case of every story in which we see Jesus gets angry, he's always in control. His anger is always righteous anger. It's always directed towards injustice and defending and caring for those that God loves. Sometimes when I experience or witness some sort of injustice. Uh, maybe one of my kids hurts one of my other kids or says something unkind. Something rises up in me. is like, that's wrong. 
right? Or somebody cuts me off in traffic, and there's this thought for a brief second, man, I would love to tell them that I think they're number one right now, right? Like, I'm not going to do it, but I would love to. That, you know, that, 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 that urge comes over me. How do I make sure that my anger doesn't come out unrighteously, doesn't, come, doesn't cause me to sin? Ephesians 4, it says, in your anger, do not sin, so the devil doesn't get a foothold over your life. How do I make sure that that doesn't happen? Well, I want to share three really practical things that have helped me just help grow in managing my anger and learning how to address it in healthy, healthy ways. And I know this is a little cheesy. They all start with P. So the three P's of anger, I hope you remember it, though. The first one is pause. Pause. When we experience a situation that triggers anger in us, an injustice, something is wrong, something needs to be done, we need to pause before we respond. In our brains, I find this super fascinating, in our brains, part of our brain, we have this small little part in the middle of our brain, deep inside, called our amygdala. You may have heard of it before. Your amygdala controls your emotional responses. When you get angry, your amygdala starts firing. It starts going crazy, right? And what's interesting is that your amygdala can actually, if the, if the situation is big enough, if the trigger is strong enough, your amygdala can actually hijack and block other parts of your brain from functioning. Specifically, the cortex part of your brain. It's specifically the frontal lobe cortex of part of your brain, which controls logical thinking and logical reasoning. And it can do that for like up to average of about 20 minutes. 20 minutes it can be blocking the part of your brain that thinks logically. If you've ever been angry and you've done something or you've said something and you thought, I don't know who that person was. Like that, I don't know where that came from. I don't know why it felt like I was so out of control. It's because your amygdala literally was blocking the logical part of your brain from being able to work properly. And it's also why counting to 10 has never worked for me. Eight, nine, 10, I'm still angry. Now I'm angry because I'm doing math. Like, like it's like double whammy, right? It's more like count to 1,200, right? 20 minutes is a good long time. You know, what's, what's interesting to me is that even though Jesus was fully divine, fully God, he was also fully human, which means that Jesus has an amygdala too, which means that Jesus needed to pause. Jesus paused in this story. Think about it. He goes to the temple. He gets to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple the night before. I'm confident he saw evidence of everything that had happened that day, even though most people had probably gone. I'm sure there, the tables were there. The benches were there. The evidence of all the animals were all there. I'm sure he was angry then, but he doesn't respond then. He leaves the situation. He comes back in the morning. He comes back in the morning and addresses it then. He pauses. Nine times out of ten, if you pause you will avoid a whole lot of hurtful, sinful regrets. Second thing is we pray, and that might seem obvious, but praying is about the last thing I think of doing when I'm angry, when I'm really angry. But, but we invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Jesus regularly went to God the Father and prayed to him and said, show me what to do. I want to only do what you're doing. You know, we can invite the Father to give us wisdom, to give us discernment and how to respond in a situation. Uh, we can invite him to bring us peace and to calm our bodies, calm our minds. The third thing is plan. We've we got to come up with a plan. You've got to have a plan. 
Like Jesus clearly had a plan. Again, he waited till the next day. He had verses of scripture he was going to quote. He was methodical. He was not out of control. You need a plan. And when you fail at your plan and you lash out or you say or do something that you regret or that it was sinful, then you need a plan for the next time that kind of situation happens. You need to like spend some time praying and saying, God, show me what my triggers are. Show me where what seems to get me over and over and over again. Is a certain time of day I seem to get more angry? A certain situation, a certain person or, or, or area or something. What are, what are your triggers? Figure out what they are. Come up with a plan. Engage the frontal lobe part of your brain, the logical, reasonable part, before your amygdala hijacks it, right? When you're not in an emotional heightened state. These three things, these three strategies have really helped me grow in a much healthier uh, space when it comes to anger. To, to use my anger in a more righteous way, in a more God-honoring way, and to follow the example of Jesus. Now, one last final thing, thing I want to say is that we see here uh, in this story that when we see, we see people respond in one of two different ways to Jesus. One of two different ways. Verse 18 said, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Two groups of people in here. We have the leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and they are plotting to end Jesus' life. But the crowd, the crowd that has cheered him on coming into town, they are in amazement at their king. Timothy Keller, in talking about this exact passage, puts it this way. He says this, either you have to kill him or you have to crown him. The one thing you can't just say is what an interesting guy. Jesus, or Keller says here about Jesus that there's really no option in between. You either have to kill him or you have to crown him. Now, if you're here today, maybe you're visiting, maybe you've been coming for a few weeks, uh, and you would say, I'm not a Christian. Or maybe you would say, I've been a, I was a Christian, and I've kind of neglected a relationship with Jesus. Uh, I've kind of walked away from God. I have really great news for you. Really great news for you. Jesus the King got righteously angry enough to overturn tables and make space for you. To make space for you to come into his kingdom. That he went to the cross and died for you. And all you have to do to crown him, all you have to do is to sort of respond by saying, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I want to accept that. I want to accept that, that gracious gift, and I want to follow you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you. And if that's you, I would encourage you, we're going to go back into a time of worship here, to just have a conversation in your mind with God, to talk, have that kind of conversation with him during that time. For many of you in the room I know who are Christians, you know, I would encourage you to take some time during worship just to be sensitive to Jesus. Does your life feel like it's been overturned in any way? Turned upside down in any way? So often we just equate that to, well, that's, we're just living in a messed up world. Or that's the enemy who, who's just trying to mess with me. But sometimes, sometimes Jesus overturns things because it's actually for our good. It's actually to make space for something better. 
And that can be hard to wrestle with. But I would just invite you to be sensitive to that, to be teachable in what he might want to show you. We're going to go into a time of worship. And then Susan, one of our small group leaders, is going to come and lead us taking communion. So if you didn't get a chance to grab the communion elements at the tables when you came in, I would encourage you during worship to grab those. That way when she comes up, you'll already have them ready to go. And then at the end, I will uh, and come back up and we'll have some time to pray and, and end off. So why don't, we, why don't we stand? Why don't we stand up? And let's take some time and let's worship God. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.